As I said in episode 900, my update about dropping this podcast back to one a week for a while for health reasons, I'm going to be sharing brand new episodes only on Mondays for a while. I'm going to use my usual Wednesday and Friday slots to reshare some excellent older episodes. What follows is one of those interviews. Probably what's going to happen is there will be a huge surge of industry and money and effort in startups this year and in 2020. And I, I would love it if that energy continued forward into the future, but it's totally possible that it'll, that it'll wane. You know, there's a boom and bust cycle uh, with any, any political cycles. Hello, this is the Great Battlefield Podcast. I'm Nathaniel G. Perlman. A great political battle is being fought right now between progressives and the forces of reaction on the other side. This show is about the political entrepreneurs and other progressive leaders who are finding new or improved ways to fight. Ann Lewis is the chief technology officer at MoveOn.org. I was very happy that she agreed to make the trip up from Virginia and speak with me recently in person. I wanted to hear about how she got such a key job in the progressive movement and what she and her organization are working on currently. Anne is a professional with a lot of insight into the intersection of technology with grassroots movement building, organizing, and politics. She brings a very strong technical background and social conscience to her work. I was struck by what she referred to as her tendency to meticulously prepare and how that had shaped her life and her work for the better. There's a lot to learn there about how to make your own luck in life. So, after a quick word from our sponsor, you should listen to a very good guest, Anne Lewis with Move On. Check out the large, detailed, and high-quality political data graphic posters from Time Plots. Our visual history of the American presidency, for example, lets you see the Clinton, Bush, Obama, and Trump presidencies in full context. Timeplot's library includes visual histories of the United States House, the United States Senate, the Supreme Court, and the Democratic and Republican parties. Find them all at www.timeplots.com. Use the code BATTLEFIELD for a discount. Hi, Anne. Hi. Uh, would you mind introducing yourself and giving me a quick biography? Sure. Uh, my name is Ann Lewis, and I'm the Chief Technology Officer at MoveOn.org. I took a kind of long and winding path through the tech industry before I ended up at MoveOn. I spent about 15 years in uh, the for-profit tech industry before finding my way over to political organizing, and I learned a lot about systems of power, privilege, money, responsibility that have informed a lot of what I think the progressive organizing movement can and is doing. I started out as a typical tech person. Give me a little background about like, where did you grow up? Where did you go to college? What did you study? Some of that stuff. Oh, okay. Uh, so I, I grew up in Gettysburg, Pennsylvania. Mm, not too far from here. Nope. In D.C., where we're taping. That's right. I went to Carnegie Mellon for college. I majored in computer science. I minored in math. Uh, and then I spent about 15 years in the tech industry. My first job out of college was at Amazon.com. This was right after the dot-com bubble had burst, and I was pretty grateful to find a job at all. I learned a lot about how big companies and growth periods can totally change industries. Also, the values internally that people use to make decisions, how that impacts how that change actually happens. Amazon, how long were you there? 
I was there for about four and a half years. When I started, I think there were 600 engineers there. When I left, there were about 2,000. There was a, they were in a period of intense growth. Also, a lot of people don't last very long at Amazon. All the stories about the work environment are true. It's, a, it's pretty intense. It's a pretty brutal culture. What, was, um, what were you doing? Were you programming? Yeah, I was yeah. a software engineer. Yeah. yeah. And so someone had snarkily built a tool called the old fart tool that allowed you to figure out how many people had been hired since you started. Good Lord. <laughs> and by the time I left, it was 90%. Yeah, working on Amazon was interesting. I mean, from a purely tech perspective, it's a great place to learn about massively scalable distributed systems. Like all of the code you write has to handle thousands of requests a second. There, at the time, were getting to be thousands of separate databases and servers that manage different parts of the website, and they all had to interact with each other in this distributed system. So there are all kinds of interesting problems to, to solve. And internally, their corporate culture is pretty interesting. I mean, they, they have these corporate values that they publish, and people really use them to make decisions internally, and they use them to evaluate employee performance. So it's interesting to see that, that idea actually get carried out. It works on some level, although I found that I disagree with the particular libertarian growth at all costs values that are in play there. But the idea that you can write simple software and run it at scale and have massive impact, measure that impact, and then encourage people to make decisions with data and make decisions with values. I think those are some pretty important ideas if you plug in more progressive values. So that's that's a philosophy that I've actually carried forward throughout my career and have tried to apply. And they also are exceptionally good at putting together a website that works well, right? Like for the consumer. Yeah, that's true. Yeah. And they, they test every single thing they put out there. So the culture of testing is also something that Amazon and MoveOn have in common, surprisingly. MoveOn also has a deeply ingrained culture of testing that's carried forward throughout all of the work that our digital campaigners do. Before Amazon, I actually I got interested in computer science in high school, not in a, I think, in a typical way that most programmers do. I was going to this rural high school in, in Pennsylvania where the majority of students matriculated into the U.S. Army. And so in ninth grade, everyone had to take the Army aptitude test to figure out if they ended up in the Army, where would they fit best? So I took this test along with all the other students and got my results back. And it said, your ideal position in the U.S. Army would be, bracket, don't join the Army, become an engineer instead. Really? <laughs> yeah. So in ninth grade, I had no idea what an engineer was. Um, this was before there was ubiquitous access to the internet and I couldn't just look everything up. And I asked my teachers what an engineer was and most of them didn't know. One of them <laughs> suggested maybe it was someone who was a train engineer who managed trains. Um, what is a pretty broad term? That's true. Yeah. yeah, it's a pretty broad term. The seed was planted and then later on in a, in a different high school, I was able to get access to a computer lab finally and started learning more about programming and I just fell in love with it. The fact that you can you can take apart a system of ideas and get it to do whatever you wanted, like that's an incredibly powerful idea. So I remember when I was little that I kind of wanted a remote control toy. I never got one, you know, like one of these cars that you could control. But then when I learned to program, it felt like that computer was the ultimate of the remote control because you could really instruct it on what to do and put games on it or put you know useful programs it was very exciting for me oh yeah i love that too even like basic parts of the programming process like using a debugger to examine what a system does that's that's also like like a remote control where you can press pause on program execution anywhere and then drive your program around in very specific ways and see what it does definitely it's like this tool that you can use to unlock the magical explanation of any system you're looking at 
So I, I love it so much. I was writing graphing calculator programs and then eventually learned a little bit of HTML and CSS. And so I was super excited when I managed to get into uh, the Carnegie Mellon Computer Science Program. Um, however... One of the best in the country. Yes. Uh, they would like to say that they are tied for first with Stanford, Berkeley, and MIT, but the, there's a rivalry there that changes every year. <laughs> <laughs> it was pretty difficult for me to figure out how to pay my own way through college, though. In high school, I was living with my, my mother, single parent, who has suffered from severe mental illness issues. Uh, and we, we always hovered right above the poverty line in terms of how stable we were or not. And so it was always this big question in my head of like, how am I going to pay for college? How am I going to pay for college? Being a meticulous over-preparer, though, I went to the guidance counselor in high school, got a binder of all possible scholarships and applied for all of them. <laughs> um, and I you. and. One of them worked out. My, my acceptance letter from Carnegie Mellon actually, you know, was like, congratulations to be accepted into this extremely competitive program. Here are the amazing things about the program. We've identified your financial need is fill in the blank 100%, and we are willing to provide fill in the blank 30%. Perhaps Carnegie Mellon is not a good choice for you. Wow. Like, what? In my acceptance letter? Are you kidding me? They're like, That's sorry, you're poor. <laughs> At the last minute, I, I got this amazing, life-saving, 100% coverage scholarship called the John S. Morrison Scholarship that only applied to the three poorest counties in Pennsylvania, only to one of five schools that included MIT and Carnegie Mellon, and only if you majored in math, computer science, physics, or engineering. Did so, this person know you? <laughs> no, it's a, it's a trust. Yeah, that's amazing. Um, that's what good fortune. I'm just so incredibly lucky that it really saved my life. It helped me to functionally jump class. And it's something that has been such a significant positive impact in my life that one of my personal financial planning goals is actually to not just save for retirement, but save up enough money to be able to cover not just one, but many scholarships like that for other people. Because I think it's the ethical thing to do. There are like social safety nets of all kinds, I think, are necessary to make sure that any student can be successful. The cost of college is prohibitively expensive now. But also, I'd like to be able to, to say, like, hey, this rich guy invested this amount of money in me, and now I'm able to invest that back in my community and cover five or six people full scholarship. Paid uh, forward. Yeah, so that even the most cold-hearted of capitalists can't deny that there was a, it's a strong positive investment to invest in education. So that's something that's very important to me. I can imagine. What was that Carnegie Mellon computer science experience like? It was so amazing. I loved it so much. There's just so much nerd culture there and so many different kinds of nerds. Just walking to class, you might find graffiti on the wall in chalk where people are arguing about which is the most excellent mathematical constant. Everybody celebrates Pi Day religiously. Uh, you might accidentally trip over someone who's trying to test their mobile robot for the mobile robot competition. That's a big deal. Engineering is just deeply ingrained in so many different parts of college culture. And also, there's an amazing drama, art, and music program. It's really nice to go, if you're a person interested in ideas and learning, to go to a place where that's celebrated rather than looked down on. Absolutely. Yeah. One thing that Carnegie Mellon also does well is they deeply and broadly fund many different research programs, and they make those research opportunities available to undergraduates. So I just kind of binged on undergraduate research opportunities when I was there and was able to get $10 an hour student programming jobs on 
uh, a speech recognition engine project, a search engine for specifically for music that would allow you to look for particular songs by humming and having your the audio file of your humming transcribed. There are just so many cool different projects to plug into. I can imagine. And once you have a degree from Carnegie Mellon in computer science, your resume looks good in the tech world for the rest of the way. Yes, but there's still a significant barriers due to tech's culture of oppressions to get past regardless. It helps you get in the door. It's something that big companies in particular recognize. But from the very beginning in college, I, I was regularly accused of being a diversity affirmative action student just there because you're a girl. Well, what percentage of the graduating class in computer science was female, would you say? My class was one of the first classes to beat the Dave to girl ratio. And I think there <laughs> You mean there was more women than there were boys named Dave? Yes. That means there weren't that many women. No. And and, and a couple of years before I came in they changed the admissions requirements to favor more well-rounded overachiever kids versus kids who had specifically had years of prior programming experience because those were those kids were disproportionately male and also they didn't have as high graduating GPAs. So the, the sudden cultural shift by the numbers for reasons that we're trying to improve outcomes created this significant backlash that a lot of people had to deal with. Turns out, though, that the, the kids whose parents were willing to send them to expensive private schools or magnet science schools or buy them their own computer or hours of private tutoring, that was an advantage that only lasted until about sophomore year. And then everybody started to encounter classes that was coursework that was new to them. And so a lot of those kids actually struggled and, and dropped out in higher numbers. Particularly in computer science and programming, there's a very big advantage to the people who learn how to problem solve on their own and find out how to navigate learning in a very self-directed way. Absolutely. And that's what college is. It's a scaffold to help you learn how to learn. And that's also like one of the biggest predictors of success as a software engineer in a professional career is have you learned how to learn and can you continue to manage that and carry that forward yourself? So after you left Amazon, what did you do next? I worked for a variety of ill-fated software startups that seemed like good ideas at the time. And I also worked for Rosetta Stone in, in the interim. I think I spent about 10 years bouncing around to a handful of different companies and I learned that the web application skills and the web architecture, front-end and back-end programming, database design and optimization that I learned at Amazon just keep showing up in a variety of different contexts, medical software, consulting, state government, environmental science stuff. Uh, the principles that allow you to build a website for one organization allow you to build a website for everyone else, and everybody needs websites. So that's kind of fun to see software engineering applied in so many different places. I ask a lot of people about what they've learned about entrepreneurship through different experiences. And it sounds like you were with a lot of startups. What did you learn about trying to build an enterprise through that process? Most startups fail for avoidable execution-related reasons. Well, uh, that sounds like something you've answered before. <laughs> <laughs> what do you mean by that? I mean, most startups fail to finish building their MVP, or they fail to take the MVP to the next level, or they fail to find a product market fit. The culture of experimentation that startup culture encourages is, is great, but 
with experimentation comes this idea sometimes that you need to reinvent the whole world to be able to make progress. And that's really not true. You really need to do your homework and carefully understand the market and ecosystem you're entering and figure out specifically how you're going to improve it. And then you need to actually get all of your programming work done and, and get to a launch. And then if you're successful, you need to solve the 100% harder problem of scaling up to the needs and demands of your customers. So I think that tech in, in general brings it some amount of cultural hubris and this idea that everything everyone has done in the past is wrong, that they can invent a new and better future starting from scratch. And I think in particular in the political world, that's a dangerous and unhelpful idea because there's deeply entrenched important history encoded in every single system, every single product, every single feature that should be understood before changing it or making it better and you know this 80% or 90% failure rate that tech startups experience, I'd like to see that be lower in political tech in particular because the stakes are higher. The cost of breaking democracy is actually very high. It is something I have definitely witnessed cycle after cycle from my position in the political tech world where very smart people entering the space for the first time look at it with disdain, think that what's there is, is junk, and don't bother to do their homework and learn why it actually is the way it is. And Absolutely. that there's a lot of complicated rules and, and interactions between parties and so on and, and regulation and whatnot. Yeah, absolutely. Yeah. I totally agree. And I think the tech industry is, is showing up in a significant way last year and this year and probably in 2020 as well with money, venture capital funding. A lot of people are interested in changing careers into politics or organizing tech. And I think the challenge there is bringing the skills that you developed in the tech industry in an egoless way, listening first and understanding the ecosystem before diving in and deciding what needs to happen. I started my political tech firm back in 97 and every presidential cycle, there would be new money, new startups. And so many of them I would look at and know immediately why they weren't going to work. Mm -hmm. because I'd been in the space and occasionally I'd be wrong, but mostly they, they were wastes of large amounts of money. Yeah, absolutely. And I think that we all have an ethical imperative to not waste money. Nonprofits sometimes have an advantage there because they have less money, less time, less resources, but also a, a deep commitment to the values of the people who are giving them money, in, in MoveOn's case, small dollar donations at massive scale, to take those $11 checks from folks on fixed incomes and spend them only on the most important impactful things where you've done enough careful planning to understand how to execute and whether your idea is right. Were you a political person before you took the job at MoveOn? So I spent my career in the tech industry doing things that now I acknowledge or I understand and can call organizing. But I started to notice a lot of problems in tech industry culture that I started to engage with, but more behind the scenes. So for example, there's significant amounts of uh, sexism and racism, cultures of oppression that are being employed and pushing lots of people out. And so I started to engage pretty quickly with issues like noticing like there's rampant exploitation of workers on H-1B visas and that women typically get paid 20% less than men for the same experience, same job, same skills. First of all, I figured out that was happening to me when a previous boss called me and apologized for paying me less than my male peers to assuage his guilt, though not actually helping rectify the problem at the time. He didn't actually raise your salary? No. He just apologized? Yeah. Remarkable. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> so 
then I was like, okay, I, I need to learn how to do negotiation better. And I went off and did a lot of learning and practicing and came up with an algorithm that I think is pretty solid. From sure. A, oh, sure. <laughs> from a game theory perspective, the employer has all the information and you have none. And so you should make them make the first offer and then ask for 20% more than that. And then there are all these reasons why people psych themselves out and choose not to do that. And, then I, and the majority of my algorithm is how to not psych yourself out, how to actually do that. But your expected value is positive. You should always wait for them to make the first offer and then ask for more. Sounds like pretty good advice in general. Try it. Let me know how it works. <laughs> well, I, I try to stay on the other end of the hiring process myself. <laughs> but um, are there other things in your career pre-move on that, that you'd like to talk about? Absolutely. I saw in the tech industry, which is a relatively new industry, people, without thinking about it or without using the descriptive labels for this, basically reenacting and reinforcing systems of oppression and recreating them in a new industry. In theory, if you're creating a work culture in an environment, a work environment in an industry that didn't exist 20 years ago, you can do whatever you want with it. It could be a cultural utopia. It could be a, like the most fair meritocratic culture and workplace ever. And that's, that's clearly not what we're seeing with tech right now. So I saw the worst parts of our culture, white supremacy culture, for example, racism, sexism, all kinds of different ways in which people can oppress each other, getting played out and amplified in tech industry environments. I think that there's a lot of freedom to change this and make these systems better. In particular, tech folks who believe they are completely fair scientists creating meritocracies wherever they go, who haven't actually learned about the history of oppression in the United States, are bound to recreate mistakes or just replicate patterns they've subconsciously absorbed and not actually carefully thought about. So I've done a lot of behind-the-scenes organizing and volunteering specifically to help folks fight those forces as they apply to them personally and professionally. And I reached a point a handful of years ago where I realized I was spending as many hours at my full-time job as I was being mad about stuff being unfair in the world and, and realized I, I absolutely need to change my career to be doing something that's values-aligned full-time. This can't be a, a, a hobby. I care too much about it. It will drive me nuts to not make this my full-time so, job. So tell me, what's the story about how you land at MoveOn as CTO? I applied to a publicly listed job posting cold. And that is a very rare way to get into a job like that. Yes. <laughs> they, <laughs> and, they but it sounds like in terms of preparation, both from a long history with technology and this kind of very serious political, social antenna that you'd been developing, that you were a pretty good fit. Yeah, it seems like it. I, I love Move On. I love uh, how scrappy well, so what and was it like? What was it like, sorry to interrupt, what was like onboarding at Move On like? What was onboarding like? I spent a day meeting with uh, Executive Director Ilya Shaman, who just walked me through the formidable history of Move On in more than a decade of growth, legacy systems, processes, code bases. I was taking over from a previous CTO, Patrick Kane, who was still around and who was able to fill me in on, on details and budgets and past projects and stuff. But basically, we were, they were in the process of doing a, a massive platform migration and reset from a set of legacy tools, core advocacy tools that affected all the work that everyone did, uh, migration onto ActionKit as a, as a platform. And a data migration of that size and scale with an organization that old, even when the folks who built both systems are around and managing the process is a significant, significant task. So the very first thing I did was co-manage that migration. 
uh, which took about a, a year and, and finished out at the end of 2015, hired a tech team, realized that there are core parts of our architecture that don't exist yet that need to exist, and so built a data warehouse, and then started the process of retraining staff on all of their tools. In retrospect, that was like kind of uh, a lot, <laughs> but at the time it just seemed like, oh, these are the problems that need to be solved. It does sound like a lot, and any organization that's been around since Move On obviously got started with the with the impeachment of Clinton, you build up all of these technical debt, essentially, of old systems that worked well at the time or as well as they could at the time and are really a little hard to parse in the current era. Absolutely, yeah. So you must have had like piles of data to deal with. Terabytes of data, uh, which is kind of an amazing opportunity. We needed to get the data in a place where you could actually run computationally expensive queries that like completed in less than a few hours. So moving a bunch of databases and systems and processes over into Amazon Redshift helped a lot there. But in general, like yes, this whole tech debt problem where you spend years building cool things, some of them end up being core tools, some of them not. Nobody ever wants to want you to take their tools away, but at some point you develop so much complexity that you have to do something. That's a constant struggle and a constant negotiation. So when I first started, we sunset a whole bunch of tools, which is a big opportunity for my newly hired tech team to then build more things. Since then, we've been in build mode for about three and a half years, and now we've recreated the problem and have too much complexity. So we're trying to figure out now how big how is to, your team? Uh, five people, and we're just about to hire a sixth person. So you're a software company within MoveOn. Yeah, a tiny yeah. one, yeah. yeah. Give me a sense of how that operates. So when your organization is your client, you have to collect the, the requirements for what what the next thing to build is. You have to figure that out. How do the relationships work within MoveOn? Yeah, that's a great question. And that's been the, that was the first problem we realized we needed to solve to reset standards on how folks work together with tech. So we end up defining a split between what we call tech support or rapid response problem solving hand-in-hand hand with campaigners, and then longer-term project work. And any kind of split, I think, for this will work. Uh, we have one person whose job it is to be on-call for tech support, and then we also have office hours in Zoom videos, since we're an all-remote org, where staff can show up and ask any question about tech, no stupid question, no question too small, and we help them figure out how to solve their problems. The critical thing here that makes it work is thinking about this not as like turning your computer off and on again or being like, oh, why didn't this person learn how to write this SQL query? I told them how to do it last week. But to think about this as technical thought partnership, organizers are amazing human beings who can do so much with so little. And so figuring out how to empower them with just the right tools at just the right time in ways that actually work for them, that's the challenge. So we spend a lot of time thinking about that, evaluating how well we're doing, talking to staff. A measure of success is that lots of folks not only know how to use the tools that we've provided for folks, but they feel comfortable asking us questions when there's a stressful moment, like when we're trying to put on the President's Day protest, um, and that we have enough shared language to be able to figure out together what's the best solution to this problem. Is this an organizing problem or a tech problem? Do you need to automate this or not? How do we get to scale? Obviously, another stakeholder, or whatever you want to call it, is the end customer for you, the, the activist, the move-on member out somewhere in the hinterlands that is trying to use your tools. How do you measure whether they're liking what you're doing, whether it's working for them? Well, uh, MoveOn has this core organizational value of member listening, and there are lots of different ways that we do that. 
some of it is like literally talking to members and seeing how well they're using your tools and, and reading the customer or the member feedback forms. Some of it, when you need to listen to members at scale, to quote uh, former director of analytics, Milan DeVries, you have to look at your data to really be listening. You have to see what people are actually doing. Our analytics team focuses on that. Everyone on staff has access to our data warehouse and can ask any questions they want about our data with SQL queries. And if they're not sure how to write them, we'll help them write them. But we really try and encourage and cultivate this culture of listening by looking at our data. MoveOn is not just a regular client to be working on tech stuff internally. It's a highly political organization with with a real ideology about where it wants to change the world. To what extent do you get to engage with that side of what MoveOn does and aspires to be? As much as you can uh, handle reading your firehose of email, to be honest, all, all of our decision-making processes are very open and transparent, and anyone can join or pile on to any kind of crisis response moment meeting or Slack channel or email thread or wherever the discussion is happening. So sometimes folks will plug in and have opinions on issues they care about. Uh, sometimes we try to intentionally drive the narrative about like specifically how does tech fit in here and how can we amplify this issue. I like to follow a model of more servant leadership. You know, it's very easy to show up and be like, I'm the tech person from the tech industry uh, that's eating the world, therefore you should do things this way. And I, I think very, very strongly we should do the opposite of that. We should try and empower political strategists and organizers to figure out how can we not just support their ideas, but amplify them with technology. So tell me a little about what MoveOn is up to in 2019 going into 2020, both on the tech side and sort of more generally? Sure. I guess the, the political answer is that we are trying to resist attacks on vulnerable frontline communities and defend America against Trump's toxic agenda and also create a mandate for progressive governing in 2020. The, the way that that intersects with tech is one of the big ways that we hold Trump accountable is when he does something we strongly disagree with, we can put together national scale protest events in 72 hours. The President's Day protest is actually a great example of this with a coalition of partners, hundreds of events nationwide, thousands, sometimes tens of thousands, sometimes hundreds of thousands of people showing up to these events. So what we're doing is creating the infrastructure to allow this grassroots energy and people power to plug into so that it can be streamlined. But it's very much not creating that energy. The energy is already there. It's just figuring out how to harness it with just the right tools at the right time. MoveOn's not the only political organization with similar needs technologically, although it's kind of gone often its own way. Do you look at other groups as models at all to learn from, or do you feel like you're running ahead of them and they need to learn from you? Oh, I think we can all be learning from each other all the time. I mean, I try to regularly reach out to other groups, tech teams, tech leads. and Who, uh, who are the ones that you find useful or, or, or close to in, in sorting out all these kinds of problems? Collaboration of a variety of groups has been happening in a couple of different coalition formats that I, I think are great. One of them is the Movement Cooperative, which is a, it started as a collective bargaining co-op and a bunch of groups like us, like Indivisible, like Women's March, like March On, have all joined up, joined forces there. If you have a line item on your budget that you want to drive down, probably there's an opportunity for collaboration on how you use that system or service beyond just let, let's all collectively bargain to get a better price. So that's been a, a great place where we share tips and tools and tactics 
there's this problem where individually none of us have the resources to solve all possible problems, but with a little bit of coordination we can figure out how to divide and conquer particular problems or where forming just-in-time coalitions will make an effort 100 times as strong. So there's a lot of that going on all the time. I wouldn't call it any one or two partners as being most impactful. I think we're, we're like stronger together as a, as a broad coalition. It's always been one of the big challenges in the progressive movement to coordinate, to coordinate with data, to coordinate out in the, in the real world. What do you see working well in that kind of coordination? Something that we've been calling internally the coalition resource model. So if you can get 10 groups together who are all like, okay, we care about this issue, if this bad thing happens, for example, if, if uh, Trump pushes out Jeff Sessions, then we will all come together and, and protest because no one is above the law. You need to build trust over time, and, and there's significant organizing work to make sure that everyone in the coalition trusts each other. But when you're able to get a baseline level of trust, then you can share tech resources and anchor the technology with one of the partners. So, for example, with the Trump is not above the law protest that happened November 8th, uh, the Move On Tech team built the anchoring website, but we independently branded it with colors and logo and text that the coalition approved. And then everybody recruited all of their people to show up to this website that had a map on it that allowed you to, in a crowdsourced way, create an event if there wasn't one in your area or sign up for an event if there was. And and the impact of that was huge. I mean, I think we had over eight or 900 events created, hundreds of thousands of RSVPs. And if each one of us had had our own separate website, then the media story w- would have been incomplete. You'd see you know, a few thousand people here, a few thousand people there. So being able to tell that story, especially to the media of national scale, by pooling resources and saying, okay, this is the website that we'll use, that makes it work. But then to make it work for all the members of the coalition, you have to listen to and incorporate rules like, oh, well, I'm going to send my people to your website, but I want you to unsubscribe them from your list afterwards. So we support all of those processes as a part of supporting the coalition. Do you ever pay attention to what's going on on the right in analogous efforts to mobilize? Uh, probably not as much as I should, to be honest. Yeah, I, I'm not too up on it myself. And it seems like when I ask that question of people, that's often the answer that we do sort of live in our own side of the ecosystem. And, and maybe there's an opportunity to learn from what they're doing over there. Or maybe it's just so different that there isn't. You recently wrote an article in Medium about the state of political technology, and it was a very nice summary of the history and some of the issues at stake right now. Why did you write that? What's, what was your purpose in putting that out there? To invite collaboration. I think we're facing similar challenges and opportunities as many other groups, so it's more just to see what other, other folks had to say and, and put our ideas out there so that we could figure out how we can work together in particular, figuring out how to make multi-channel engagement work, I think that's a big problem or a big opportunity. We've historically primarily engaged with members over email, and so we, whenever there's an important thing happening, we email our list of millions of folks and say, hey, there's this thing happening, what should we do? But now, to really engage with folks, you need to meet them where they are, and people are definitely not 100% on email. Some folks primarily respond to and prefer SMS messages. Some folks are on Facebook and Twitter. Uh, other folks are on other social networks. My 16-year-old, you'd reach her on Instagram. You'd never get her by email. Right. Yeah. Yeah. I'm, uh, you know, Snapchat friends with my 12-year-old cousins, and those are my only Snapchat friends. But that's the only way to reach them when I need to reach them. Um, so, so figuring out how to engage folks 
is a, is a tricky logistical problem because what was previously an email drafting process becomes a multi-channel content distribution process. But it's not like you can multiply your staff by seven to reach seven channels. So you need to make smart choices about which channels to engage in in which ways. And then we also need to all be aware of the demographic skews in all those channels to understand who you're reaching and, and in particular who you're listening to. So if you want to send a message, do you have something like in your CRM type database which says this person is best reachable by this channel? Or is that something you track so that you could, rather than sending out a blast email, you send out a blast whatever is the best fit? Do you do anything like that? Well, we should. You can tell whose favorite channel is which by where they actually open open your email or your text. So do you send it to multiple channels? Is that your solution to that? Yeah, we tend to do that. Yeah, okay. we're just evolving our strategies right now and also figuring out how to intentionally grow our membership to reflect the demographic characteristics that we think are most fair and representative of the progressive movement. Now, I feel like people in political technology are not asked enough about politics and they tend to be asked too much or maybe only about technology and politics. What were you thinking as you watched the 2016 election, the 2018 election, and the run-up to the 2020 election? Give us a little bit of your view on the politics in this day and age in America. Well, I was proud to see so many women, and in particular women of color, get elected to the House. That was that was amazing. I was personally heartbroken when Stacey Abrams didn't win governor. I think just about everybody was. Yeah. Yeah. So, and I and I was same thing in in uh, Florida with Gillum. Right, yeah. absolutely, yeah. I, I'm excited by Alexandria Ocasio-Cortez, um, like everyone else on the internet. One thing that I, I saw happening was uh, new faces, new ideas, new opportunities, new strong progressive left with many faces serving many different many different Americans, and that was exciting. And then I, but then I also saw us facing very old, decades-long problems like voter suppression, like gerrymandering, and I, I think we're also seeing the last gasps, I hope, of, of white supremacy culture in the political narrative and how overtly and dog whistle racist it is. It's, it's, it's weird because, you know, I'm 53. In my watching of politics for all these years since I was probably seven, campaigns always had this element of signaling to racists in a covert way. It feels like it's more, it's surfaced more than since, you know, maybe George Wallace in the 60s and early 70s in this country. It's, it's disconcerting. I hope it's the last gasp. Yeah. According to the author of um, Brown is the New White, there's a census and demographic majority of theoretical voting block of people of color plus progressive white people that could be the voting block majority. And so maybe the other side knows this and trying, is trying to, to fight off the existential threat. That's one theory. Another theory is the Eli Paris or filter bubble theory, which is that we all are so used to a personalized media stream delivered to us mostly through social media, but increasingly the, every single web property and app that we're interacting with has some amount of like ad-based customization for us based on disturbing amounts of personal data that other apps have sold to them uh, that's showing us basically what, what will make us click, which is not necessarily the information that's most useful to us, but it's the, the information that will be most likely to make us react. And so that inherently makes lots of media and messaging more inflammatory. Um, and it also favors the politicians who are willing to be inflammatory, which right. may not be good for the country. Sometimes it might be if they're in service of a you know, positive social goal, but it, it, it may in general divide us more. 
Absolutely. Where would you put move on politically? Like if there's some spectrum of ideology, which is a little bit of a, a debatable thing left to right, where, where would you place move on? Farther to the left, um, in the part of the left, to the left than the Democratic Party as a whole, say. Yes, absolutely. Yeah. A couple of years ago, there was this messaging project that we tried to figure out if Move On members identified as liberal or progressive, and found that folks who identify as liberal are more moderate, Democratic Party liberal, and but there was like this huge population of folks who identified as capital P progressives, and those are the folks that are that Move On's members that Move On seeks to serve. That being said, what are the ideas that the progressive movement? is serving or uh, is trying to amplify, that's a moving target. And Move On tries to keep it broad and focus on identifying progressives in America, listening to them, and then taking those ideas and trying to amplify them. So how does Move On engage with a 2020 Democratic primary presidential field that is so rich, I guess, and so disparate in the politicians and their beliefs? How, How do you engage when everybody's definition of progressive is a little bit different. Yeah, that's a, that's a tough one. Um, it's uh, not my job to decide, but... Uh, How do you as an organization make a call like that? Because in the past you've had, and I talked to Ben Wickler about this a little bit, but in the past you've had like straw polls internally uh, with your members and made decisions about endorsements. Is that a similar model that you'll follow? Probably. I, I think what we will do is start with values. We're, we're going to do a lot of polling and member listening to figure out what are the most important progressive values to bring into 2020. And then a lot of our messaging and campaigning work that's aimed at the Democratic primaries will focus on figuring out how to create a mandate for progressive governing and then strongly encouraging the candidates who are running in this wide playing field to really represent progressive America uh, but I, I couldn't tell you who we'd endorse or who we're leaning towards right now. It's still way too early. Because you have such, I don't know, what what is the size of your list generally these days? Uh, I think I can tell you that it's millions. That's a lot of weight that you could throw in one candidate's direction if you felt like that was the right oh, thing to absolutely. do. Oh, absolutely. And it's not just, uh, so millions, I can't tell you the exact number. But it's not just email now. We have an SMS list that's more than a million people. We have significant reach on Facebook and Twitter and social media. And also are figuring out which audiences to engage that haven't been engaged before. Newly awakened generations of folks who are just taking an interest in politics this year. Do you have a sense or do you study to what degree your audience overlaps with the audience or the supporters of candidates or other organizations? Do you compare that kind of data and and collaborate in growing lists? Sometimes. I mean, there's a coordination boundary there to be aware of. Sometimes we'll team up. Legal with boundary. A, right. Yeah. yeah. I mean, you like if you're not coordinated with a campaign, you can't, there's a lot, set of things you can't share. If we decide that we, we can share and we can coordinate in that way, you can calculate list overlap, for example, or just swap tips on, I sent, put this message or this ad in this platform and we're able to get this many clicks or donations or pledges in a particular amount of time. Then you can see if you both ran that experiment, where your numbers are and what the overlap could potentially be. What do you say is the attitude within Move On towards the Democratic Party? Well, uh, that they could be pushed farther to the left, that they should move faster and do more. 
that one's a little above my my pay grade. I'll I'll tell you that. <laughs> <laughs> Move on is going through a change of on the executive director level, right? Mm-hmm. How how is that affecting things internally? I've loved working with Anna and Ilya, our executive directors. It's very bittersweet to see them transition off, but um, they're managing the transition in like typically incredibly thoughtful, meticulous way. So we're running a very careful executive search process working with this uh, search firm called Koya. We're hoping to be interviewing in the spring and ideally find candidates in June, although these timelines are they vary by the people involved. So, um, do you know what they're off to do next? No idea. I'm not uh, sure if they, they, may, they may not know either. Maybe not. Yeah. It's got to be a pretty intense job running an organization that's so enmeshed in politics right now. Oh, absolutely. They're being so responsible about the transition, though. They've been there for exactly the right amount of time, and they're leaving in an election off year. So I'm excited to see what new leader candidates we're going to get, because you could take Move On in a variety of different directions. Move On has an incredible amount of funding, staff that can execute incredibly effectively on any project, and we're not pinned to any particular set of issues or issue areas, so a new leader could really take Move On in a variety of promising directions. As leader of the Move On tech world, where do you want to take your part of the enterprise? I'm always excited about scale, and I think that everything we're doing right now, we can always do more efficiently. The crisis response model that was in play for Trump is not above the law and the President's Day protest just uh, last Monday We have a set of tech tools and processes that power the website behind that and a lot of organizing processes that happen to make a a series of national protests actually work in urban areas, in rural areas, at national scale, with thousands of hosts. There's tons of work to do there. So we have a long list of improvements that we want to make to those tools to make them work even better for organizers. We also have a flagship petition system that MoveOn built seven years ago Uh, And there's a lot of uh, scaling and upgrades and improvement to do there. We have done a lot of customization, mostly front end, some back end, on uh, ActionKit as our core political CRM. So every single page that ActionKit hosts, you can customize, you can improve the design of, you can make it more mobile friendly. You can figure out better ways to drive people to action or figure out what about this user experience is getting in the way and remove those obstacles. We also have an open source text banking system called Spoke, that was a collaboration that started in the Coders for Sanders volunteer group, um, picked up by the Progressive Coders Network, and then picked up by Move On that allows volunteers to text other Move On members and other Americans to to tell them, hey, there's this event coming up in your area, or there's this thing happening that you should this know This is about. your version of Hustle Relay and some of the other products mm-hmm. out there, right? That's right, yeah. yeah. Text banking, we tested it out in 2016. We were Hustle customers then and found it to be an incredibly impactful tactic. From a volunteer perspective, it's something volunteers can do that has real meaningful impact. They can do it in a few minutes a day on their phone from wherever they are. So it's an incredibly popular volunteer activity, but it's also something that in 2016 led to 50% of incoming RSVPs on our canvassing events. It's something that has a high impact as well. Do you worry about it burning out that channel, like with all of the different people that are now hitting text the way they used to hit email and people just losing that or do you think it'll be resilient as a useful area oh absolutely i think sms as an ecosystem is where email was 20 years ago so 20 years ago you could write a pearl script that would send anyone an email and it would probably get delivered to their inbox there are a million email client applications 
But when folks started getting more email, they also started getting more spam. A few big company email providers rose to the top as the dominant ones like Gmail, Yahoo, AOL, for example. And email deliverability became a thing. Like To be able to send emails to 5 million people, you need to have email sending IP address reputations that you build and maintain over time. I think that's going to start becoming an important aspect of, of texting. A, a whole lot of groups like us and also infrastructure providers like Twilio, everyone is interested in figuring out how can we make the ecosystem sustainable. So how can we all consistently respect opt-outs? How can we all consistently avoid spam patterns? Uh, so there are a bunch of coalition efforts underway right now to figure out what are the right rules for deliverability, who gets to decide them, and how can we all adhere to them? And there's a lot of collective action difficulties in that because there's an advantage to flouting those rules for somebody, right? Yeah. And, and not... I mean, I the, yeah, and those folks an can email. try and then get Email screwed. fundraisers who go crazy sending a zillion emails and ruining the reputations of other people who send fewer or, or things like that. Right? Well, that's why you need a definition of reputation that's bound to the sender like we do for email. So I think that'll emerge, whoever creates it. Maybe it's the telecom carriers, maybe it's the infrastructure providers. So I, we shouldn't spam people. We should try and meet people where they are and, and, the, and the platforms that work for them and only in the ways that they want. So I think figuring out how to do that well is the key. And people who try to break the rules will end up screwing themselves over. So you should, probably shouldn't do that. <laughs> so you, in your article, you, you noted that there's substantial developments in the political tech ecosystem, higher ground funding, political startups, other political startups on their own. What is the relationship between MoveOn and a lot of these new firms and, and nonprofits that are that are doing interesting things in the space? Well, some of them we're, we're clients of. Uh, we're always up for experimentation and figuring out which new tools and engagement mechanisms are going to be resonant for our users. So I'm really excited to see a whole bunch of tech industry folks enter the space because I think the more money and the more competition, the better the resulting political tech will be for clients like us. They're not all just like straight tech people. Some of them are like came off presidential campaigns and, and had tech skills and built things. So it's a, it's a mix. That's true. And it's exciting to see all the innovation this year. What are a few things that rise to the top for you? I'm impressed with Swing Left. I'm impressed with Mobilize America. I think the tricky part is going to be figuring out what new tactics should be one-off tools uh, versus platforms. From our perspective, all of these new vendors and all of these new tools and tactics are build versus buy decisions. And in election years, we tend to have more money than we have time, and it's generally better for maintainability to use Office to help software when you can. But the switching cost for major platforms is actually very high. Our political CRM action kit, or if someone was on Action Network, the switching cost of changing that provider would probably be like six months to a year, whereas checking out a new Facebook chatbot, that's something that you could do a few weeks of experimentation on and understand whether it works for you. So I think... The challenge for us and also especially for smaller organizations is to figure out how to experiment in meaningful ways without taking on too much risk that could end in catastrophic ways. Because probably what's going to happen is there will be a huge surge of industry and money and effort in startups this year and in 2020. And I, I would love it if that energy continued forward into the future, but it's totally possible that it'll, that it'll wane. You know, there's a boom and bust cycle. Uh, with any any political cycles. So figuring out how to harvest that experimentation into tools that become true long-term movement assets, I think that's a big challenge. Are you following the 
I don't know what some have termed the fourth data war, the new platforms for voter data on the progressive side and uh, big funders coming into the space. What, what do you see going on there? I think it, building infrastructure is hard. And in particular, heterogeneous data integration is a very hard problem to solve. So if that effort is successful from an execution perspective and provides a core data set that, that movement organizations can use, maybe that's great. But the tech startup failure rate is pretty high even for problems that are fun to solve. But the significant amount of shovel work that it takes to bring many, many different disparate databases together is, is incredibly hard, incredibly time-consuming. So I, I guess I'm holding off on like judgment of should this happen, and if so, how, to see if that project's actually going to execute. Do you guys work with existing vendors like Catalyst and Target Smart? And we do, yeah. We've, <laughs> we've purchased access to the national voter file, Target Smart specifically, through the movement cooperative, the collective bargaining co-op. Got it. What questions should I have asked you that I have failed to? <laughs> Let's see, maybe how can progressive organizations grow more intentionally? <laughs> how, how can progressive organizations <laughs> grow more intentionally? <laughs> uh, please advertise your jobs publicly. There's a lot of hiring of friends or friends of friends or hiring through social networks. Where would you suggest people place such ads? So Move On is an all-remote organization. I would suggest that folks consider encouraging or supporting a remote organization because you can run nationally competitive hiring processes. So if you do that, we, we get about 80% of applications for open job postings from WeWork remotely. There are remote job sites. I think there's so much interest in working on helping to protect a threatened democracy right now. There are so many tech people who are, in particular, who are threatened by Trump's agenda. We should try and harness all of this energy by finding the best people for all of the available jobs that there are in the political tech world in particular. And that starts with running equitable hiring processes, finding fair objective criteria to evaluate people, casting a really wide net, making it possible for everyone to be able to find your jobs versus folks just hiring their friends. And that sounds like how you approach hiring yourself. Is that right? Absolutely. Yeah. Are you hiring? Are you looking for more people? I am. I'm, I'm going to hire a, another software engineer uh, starting that job process this week. So if, if, if I was a decent programmer 30 years ago, will, will I have a chance? Absolutely. Yeah. Everyone, well, that, you know, step one is wide net. Yes, please apply. We have a application process on moveon.org slash careers. We get a, a few hundred applications for every open position. That's, uh, a, that's a healthy, how many of them are actually relevant to be considered, would you say? Probably about 30%. Uh, some people mass apply. Some people don't end up being a culture fit. I don't have any preconceived notions of who the ideal engineer is to add to my team. And I think if I did that, I'd be adding bias to a process that should be uh, fair. And in being fair, it'll be maximally competitive. So I think anybody who's willing to do our interview process and then ends up at the top of the What is your interview process? So what hoops does someone have to jump through to persuade you that there are a good potential employee. There were a few rounds of technical Q&A, talking through your experience and different aspects of web application development that show up in our particular server stacks. The most important part of the interview, though, is the pair programming coding interview, where since we're all remote, we spend a lot of time pair programming with each other over Zoom. In this interview step, with the, the interview candidate shows up to a Zoom room with an engineer on the team 
and we give them a programming problem to solve. They're, they're able to work in whatever language and framework they're most comfortable with, not a, a language and framework zealot. I believe that smart people, like we were saying at the beginning of this interview, have learned how to learn and can pick up whatever languages and frameworks they need to solve the right problems in the right ways. And then we talk through figuring out the coding solution to this problem. So a lot of it is communicating your thought process, asking for help when you need it, the pair programmer interviewer will help as much as you ask for, but you have to verbalize your problem-solving process and ask when you need it. Is any part of the criteria that you consider when hiring for this compatible political interests or other you know, substantive alignment? Absolutely. Uh, I think folks filter themselves in and out of the process, though, based on understanding that MoveOn is a progressive political group. We also, as a part of the interview process, usually ask folks to write what we call an equity statement, which is a specific description of how how they think they could use MoveOn's impact, power, and microphone to help a specific underserved community that that they care about. So that also is a, is a filtering step to figure out whose values aligned, but not in a way that's prescriptive. You know, it's not like check all of these boxes to say that you like these things. It's more like tell me what you would do with MoveOn's platform. All this is falls on my year is so remarkable compared to the world that I remember in politics and computers in the late 80s when I could probably spot everybody in the whole country who had that intersection of interests. So it's, it's just wonderful to see how the space has transformed and professionalized. And it's nice to see someone like you in a spot like this. Thanks. Anything else you want to say? Yeah. One of the most inspiring things that I've found working at MoveOn is learning about how advocacy work and in particular media work can provide checks and balances on a, on a system of checks and balances that is sometimes not working right. I, I think the idea of checks and balances is just an absolutely beautiful idea, but sometimes the branches of government are not holding each other accountable. And when that happens, using a media microphone or pointing a spotlight with collective action and people power is a very real way of holding that stagnant government organization accountable and getting it to pay attention and and shouting from the hilltops, this is what we care about. You need to pay attention to this to serve us as your government. Yeah, it's an important role that your organization is playing. Do you ever worry that there's, or test, that there's unintended consequences to sort of yelling about something? Oh, absolutely. I mean, you have to not just be willing to sound the fire alarm, but also have uh, specific actionable demands that, that are reasonable, that you assume could be taken seriously and could be put into action. You know, the way Alexandria Ocasio-Cortez is talking about the Green New Deal and amplifying ideas that are very popular with a growing movement of especially young people, but figuring out how to operationalize those ideas and turn them into real policy and then openly communicating that back to uh, members. I think that's a, that's a great example. I'm excited to see how the political tech ecosystem evolves this year. I think there's so much potential to work together, to build amazing new tools, to scale tools, to have national impact. And I, I'm really excited for the challenge of figuring out how to harness that energy and turn it into long-term movement energy. Trump getting elected scared a lot of people into becoming more politically active. How can we stay active? How can we keep that meaningful? How can we make sure that action feels like something that's a core part of every American's identity, that they need to take action to show, here's what's important to me. Uh, how can we get a majority of Americans 
out and voting every single election? How can we help folks stay up to date with the issues they care about that deeply affect their lives? So I think that the, the challenge and the threat of the Trump administration is actually this opportunity. Now that everyone's paying attention, what do you do with that attention to turn it into long-term, sustainable movement energy? I think that's an absolutely perfect statement to end this interview on, and I appreciate it. Thank you for your time. <laughs> Thank you. That was Ann Lewis with MoveOn.org. She's at MoveOn.org. MoveOn is an amazing example of ongoing political entrepreneurship and a place where millions mobilize for a better society. This is Nathaniel G. Perlman with the Great Battlefield Podcast. You can find us at resistancedashboard.com or by searching for Great Battlefield in places where podcasts are found.